On the evening of October 4, 2005, Christy Wilson went to the Thunder Valley Casino in Northern California, hoping to win some easy money. According to her family, she was actually quite the gambler, and it came to her pretty naturally, being a very bright, very intuitive person. She was described as being smart, smart with numbers and mathematically inclined. She went so far as to study blackjack so she can learn how to improve her gambling skills. It all started one night when she walked into the casino with $100 and then walked out with $5,000. And it certainly was the hopes of winning big that brought Christy to Thunder Valley that evening. She was playing blackjack until the early morning hours of October 5th. Her entire evening was caught on several of the more than 700 surveillance cameras inside and outside the casino. So, she was seen leaving the casino on those cameras. However, she was accompanied by an unidentified man. She went there alone, so who this man was, nobody knew. It was someone she must have met while she was gambling. He appeared to be a dark-haired stocky looking older man as they walked out of the casino they both eventually disappeared into the sea of cars and into the parking lot and out of the range of cameras those images of christy walking with this unknown man are the last images ever captured of the 27 year old she has not been seen or heard from since today we're going to talk about her last night and find out if we can unravel the mystery of what happened to her in today's bonus episode of California Dreaming, The Disappearance of Christy Wilson. A few minutes after their images disappeared from the view of the camera, the man she was walking with was soon seen on video surveillance driving his car out of the parking lot. He appeared to be alone as there did not look as if there was anyone else seated in the car from the vantage point of the cameras. At the time Christy disappeared, she lived with her boyfriend, a man named Danny Berlando. He did not accompany her to the casino that evening, electing to stay home. That aspect of the story always struck me as kind of strange. Unless I'm having a girls' night, I don't really see myself going to a casino without my husband. And what's more, I really don't see myself going to a casino alone. Maybe it is a solitary activity for some people, but for me, and I've been to plenty of casinos over the years, it's always been a social activity, something to do with friends or my significant other. But then again, gambling wasn't always really the main activity for me. We go for the fun or the comp drinks and food, but that's just me. From what Christie's family has stated, she was pretty good at gambling. However, after she disappeared and her mom had the chance to look through her room, she found all sorts of handwritten notes and books about gambling tips, which led her to believe that perhaps her daughter did have a gambling problem. She likely went to the casino more often than her mom really knew. So because gambling and winning money was her sole purpose of going, that might be why her boyfriend stayed home. Maybe gambling just wasn't his thing. And according to him, he really didn't know that she had plans to go to the casino that evening. 
but there's more to their relationship that I will get into in a little bit. So anyway, that night she went missing. She was at the casino for more than six hours. And for the majority of the time that she was there, she was in the company of that mysterious dark-haired man. The same man that she was with in the final images that were caught of her on the exterior cameras of the Thunder Valley Casino. When Christy's boyfriend Danny woke up the next morning and realized that she had never come home, naturally he began to worry. The last time he had spoken to her was the night before at 10.28 p.m. They had a 55-second conversation, and that's when she let him know that she was at the casino, and she told him that she was ahead and that, yeah, she was probably going to leave soon and she should just go home, quit while she's ahead. And she can actually be seen on surveillance camera footage taking that last phone call from Danny. But she didn't quit while she was ahead. She ended up staying and gambling for almost another three hours after that phone call. And it didn't seem like the odds were in her favor in those final hours of gambling. And I'll discuss that when we go through the timeline of her last hours at the casino with that unknown man. Anyway, back to Danny. He spent the entire next day making phone calls. He called Christy's phone, leaving increasingly desperate messages for her to call him back, that he was really worried and he needed to hear from her. In all, he made over 80 calls to her phone. All of them went unanswered. He called hospitals and jails, nothing. Two days later, he decided to drive over to the Thunder Valley Casino to see if he could find her. He didn't find her, but he did find her car, still parked in the casino parking lot. That's when he full-blown panicked, and he called police, and he called Christy's parents, Deb and Pat Boyd. He spoke to her stepdad, Pat, who happened to be a detective with the San Jose Police Department. Her folks knew immediately that there was something terribly wrong going on, and they couldn't help it, but... Suspicion quickly fell on Danny. Danny and Christy had somewhat of a tumultuous relationship, and her parents were not very fond of the guy. Just a couple of months before her disappearance, both Danny and Christy were arrested for a domestic disturbance. Police took pictures of the two, and both of them had injuries on their bodies. Danny had some scratches across his chest, and Christy had some bruises on her arms. When he was asked if he abused Christy, he thought for a moment and then he said that they were in an abusive relationship, that it wasn't a dynamic that could necessarily be pinned on one or the other. According to him, they were equally responsible for the fighting and if anything, he claims Christy was more of the aggressor than he, that the bruises on her arms was him restraining her from attacking him. Seeing the pictures of the scratches on his chest, kind of lends credence to his story. The bruises were mainly on her upper arms, near her biceps and triceps. So, I tend to believe him. But, either way, it doesn't really sound like a very healthy relationship. Needless to say, police investigate Danny right away because of the history of abuse in his relationship with Christy. Christy's mom and dad did not think highly of Danny at all and their suspicions turned to him as well. He was an unemployed car salesman who met Christy at 
where else? A casino, about a year before she disappeared. In short order, they started a relationship, and soon, he moved into her apartment. So when investigators searched Danny and Christie's apartment, they didn't see any obvious signs that there had been a struggle or any sorts of foul play. There also didn't seem to be any evidence that she was planning to leave either. She didn't pack anything that she would need on a day-to-day -day basis. All her clothes were there, all her medications, and especially her cat. She loved her cat and would not leave that behind either. And when they checked Danny's cell phone and saw all those calls that he made to Christy's phone in the time following her disappearance and recovered all those voicemails he had left, investigators entertained the idea that this was his way of trying to develop an alibi for himself. It's not unheard of for someone to report someone missing yet actually be the one responsible for the person's disappearance. And the phone calls are a way to feign concern for the missing person to cover their tracks or to make it appear that they weren't involved. Remember I mentioned Christy's stepdad Pat was a detective with the San Jose Police Department. Early on in the investigation, because of the violence that had gone on in the past between Danny and Christy, he was convinced that Danny had something to do with her having gone missing, that this was definitely a case of foul play. And because Pat was a local detective, law enforcement from all over Northern California joined in the search for Christy as soon as the word got out that the detective's daughter was missing. The San Jose Police Department coordinated a large search that covered hundreds of square miles. They searched on foot, by vehicles, by ATVs, by air, with helicopters and planes, and both public and private resources were utilized in the search for Christy. Her stepdad, early on, worked on the theory that a killer usually dumps their victims somewhere near where the crime took place. And because he felt so strongly that Danny was responsible, he himself searched the areas surrounding his apartment, literally everywhere he could possibly look, on land and in water, but came up empty. To them, Danny seemed to be the only person in Christie's life that had any kind of motive to want to do her harm. According to Pat, when it comes to a boyfriend, there are countless motives. And he knew that Christy was preparing to get herself out of this toxic relationship with Danny. She had recently promised her mom that she was leaving him. But her stepdad kind of felt like it was one of those typical cycles of an abusive relationship that one person tries to pull away but then is drawn back in, despite the fact that this relationship was no good. Danny had somewhat of an alibi for the evening Christy disappeared. He had dinner at his parents' house. But there were several hours that Danny could not account for, and he wasn't with anyone that could verify his whereabouts or corroborate his story. After dinner, he went back to his apartment, and with a the buddy, they hung out until about 11.30 p.m. And from that point on, until he first used his cell phone the next morning, his activities could not be confirmed by anyone but himself. So, for the time being, Danny was going to be on the back burner, but still, very much a person of interest as far as investigators were concerned. In the meantime, investigators turned their attention to the casino. They wanted to review the security camera footage of that evening Christy was last seen. Like I said earlier, there were over 700 cameras covering pretty much every inch of the casino. 
They did get a shot of Christie's car entering the casino parking lot that afternoon. It was still light out. They next saw footage of her entering the casino, and all of her movements for the entire evening was documented on that video surveillance. They were able to see everything she did that entire evening. Their surveillance video showed Christy playing blackjack most of the night. It should be noted that there were no signs of Danny anywhere in the footage. He was not at the casino with her that night. So soon, Christy could be seen seated next to that stocky, dark-haired man that I mentioned earlier. You can see them interacting with one another in the video. When either one of them wins a hand, they high-five each other. You can see on certain angles that he starts to put his arm around her in such a way that appears that he might be trying to flirt with her or pick up on her. Christy was, by the way, a very, very cute girl. So, according to the blackjack dealer that night, who recalled the two of them, Christy was winning early on. However, as the evening wore on, her luck started to change for the worst, and she started losing. The dealer also mentioned that Christy was drinking alcohol, but it did not seem that she was drinking that heavily. I'm certain Christy being there to play cards strategically isn't likely to want to become hazy and allow alcohol to affect her judgment and her game. And besides, a detective who looked at the tape for the duration of the time that Christy was playing counted that he saw Christy sip from her beverage 17 times for the whole six hours. However, based on what they could see on the video, it was apparent that Christy's body language and behavior had shifted as the night went on. There was no audio, so it was impossible to hear what Christy might have been saying. But visibly, something changed from the time that she got there up until the time she was getting ready to leave. She was a regular at Thunder Valley, so the dealers knew her, and they were familiar with her. And they remember on this night, she was acting weird, in a way that was out of character for her. They described her as being kind of a jerk, acting belligerent, mouthing off, and generally losing her cool. It got to the point that some of the employees had started to discuss the possibility of asking her to leave. That's how rude she was becoming. But the dark-haired man seated next to her intervened on her behalf. He said that she would be okay and he'd make sure that she calms down. And after that, they continued gambling for a little while more. So at this point, I started wondering, what's with the change in Christie's behavior? Maybe she was losing that bad and was making her upset? She didn't seem to be drinking all that much, but something was affecting her. If I were to speculate, and knowing how this story ends, I might begin to think that she may have been slipped something in her drink. And because she was only sipping it, whatever it may have been wasn't really working at its full potency. But that's just a guess. More on that a little bit later, though. So investigators began to wonder, who was this man that she was with? Luckily, earlier in the evening before he started gambling with Christy, this man sat down at some slots, and in doing so, 
he inserted his player's card into the machine. And you know you do that to rack up points to cash in for comps like food or room reservations or whatever. They were able to track the time in the machine that the man was sitting at, and based on his player card, they were able to identify the dark-haired man as one Mario Garcia, a 53-year-old executive at a healthcare company. And at first glance, he didn't appear to be the type of person who would be involved in any nefarious activity. He was a very successful executive. He had a six-figure income at a very large company as a project manager. He had a million-dollar five-bedroom home in the heart of the gold country. He was married. He had two children. He was very active in the community. He was well-liked by his neighbors. He was even the soccer coach for his kids' teams. But according to what investigators saw on the casino video surveillance, both Christy and Garcia left the casino at the same time, around 1 o'clock in the morning. They can be seen walking out towards the parking lot. But unfortunately, the camera panned away from their direction for a few moments. And what ultimately happened to Christie seems to have taken place in those few moments when those cameras were pointed in another direction. A few minutes later, Garcia's car is seen leaving the parking lot. But Christie's car? Hers never moved. She never made it to her vehicle. Somewhere in that parking lot, she vanished. It was never far from the thoughts of investigators and even Christie's parents that maybe she vanished on her own volition. She was going through kind of a rough patch during the time that she disappeared. She was struggling with that rocky relationship with Danny. She had recently lost a really good job that she had landed out of college and she was feeling the pressures of being suddenly unemployed. She began fighting bouts of anxiety and depression. And there was one thing that her mom found in her room when she looked through her things, and that was a package that contained some self-help materials and books and DVDs about conquering depression. So, this told her mom that Christy was trying to work through it. She wasn't the type of person to not fight those demons. So her mom was able to quickly write off the theory that she might have left on her own or may have wanted to do her self-harm. So investigators had these two suspects, Danny Berlando, the boyfriend, and Mario Garcia, the gambler. Danny was basically put through the ringer. They searched his home, they searched his car, they scrutinized every aspect of his life. They combed through his phone records, his whereabouts according to cell phone tower pings, the use of his phone, his computer was analyzed forensically, and after going through his entire life backwards and forwards, they found absolutely no evidence, forensic, digital, or otherwise, that linked Danny to Christie's disappearance. As for Garcia, investigators found some very interesting things in his background, which I will go over a little bit later. At the onset of the investigation, Garcia was cooperative. According to him, they were just gamblers having a good time. He claims that he's sorry that Christie's gone missing and it was his hopes that she is someday found. He allowed officers to search his home and to take his car and search that. And when they did, 
They were able to place him under arrest for weapons charges when they found two guns in his home and one in his car. So while they were working to try to find evidence linking Garcia to Christie, they were comfortable knowing that he was in jail on these unrelated charges for the time being. All the while, Garcia's maintaining his innocence, insisting that he had nothing to do with Christie having gone missing. He admits that he did spend hours with Christie playing blackjack, and they walked out together towards his car. According to him, she suddenly realized that she had left her cell phone in the casino. So, he says they embraced. Those were his words, that they embraced, which I found to be kind of borderline creepy. And then he said they gave each other a high five. And then they said goodbye to one another. They said good luck. And that was the end of the conversation. I don't know about you guys. I'm sorry, but none of this sounds legit to me. I mean, I get high-fiving at the gaming table, but as a gesture when parting ways, I don't know about that. It feels awkward. And I don't think Christy would have embraced or high-fived this guy in a dark parking lot. In his interview, he was asked if he was hoping to get more than just a night of gambling out of Christy. But he denied that completely. He wasn't trying to become intimate with Christy, he says. He claims that he left. He left the parking lot alone in his car. And then he played the age card, stating that at his age of 54 years old, with a heart condition, taking prescription blood pressure medication, that the last thing on his mind is to try and have sex with anyone, just on the fly like that. For him, he said, a sexual encounter needs to be a planned activity. And on top of that, he is and has been happily married for many, many years. And his wife, Jean Garcia, vouches for him as the perfect husband, the perfect family man. She stated in her interview that from the moment they met, they had an instant connection, that things just clicked. And in part, this was because both of them were immigrants. She was from China and he was from Mexico. She describes him as a family man, completely dedicated to her and the kids. If he's not working, they're together doing activities with their children. And in his interview, Garcia's 19-year-old son echoed the same sentiments, that he was always there for them. He always comes home, that they're together for dinner every night, that they were a close, tight-knit, good family. Well, you want to know what I have to say to that? I hate to break it to you, kid, but Mr. Perfect Family Man was perusing around that casino all day and way into the wee hours of the night, I might add, gambling and frolicking around the casino with his hands all over Christy all night long, and everyone saw it on video. And this was a Thursday night. He was supposed to be at work the next morning. He wasn't at home being a dad. He wasn't at the dinner table that night. Garcia was not being the family man that they tried to portray him as. He was the last known person to have been seen with Christy that night at the Thunder Valley Casino. She spent most of those six hours there with him. And as they sat there together, there was another gentleman who would later become an important witness to the events that night at that blackjack table. And this guy 
was an emergency room doctor, so he came across as very credible, very observant, and very reliable. So when Christy and Garcia migrated from one table to another, they sat down next to the good doctor playing blackjack. In his interview, he recalled Christy asking to borrow a chip from him. He was caught off guard by this sudden request for a loan from a stranger. So he lent her a $100 chip, which he later asked for back a little bit later when he saw her winning. According to the doctor, she wasn't exactly happy that he asked for his chip back. She was even surprised at it, but he ended up getting his money back from her. It was also around this time that things really started going south. Christy was becoming loud and verbally abusive, and Garcia stepped in so she wouldn't be asked to leave. And according to the doctor, it wasn't that much long after that exchange that they ended up leaving the casino together. So, was there anything investigators could see at all during that time that they walked out the casino doors? until they saw Garcia's car leave the parking lot? Yeah, there kind of was, despite the fact the camera panned away. Garcia's car has a feature when it's unlocked, and it provided somewhat of a timeline as to when his car was open. The lights on his Toyota Camry flashed four times, and they were able to figure out that indicated he unlocked all the doors on his car. I have a Toyota Prius and it does basically the same thing. When I hit the unlock button once, the lights flash twice and only the driver's side door opens. But when I click the button twice, it flashes four times and all four doors open for when I have passengers with me. So it's not conclusive proof that he opened his doors for passengers but he definitely hit his car remote button more times than he needed to if it were just him that needed to get into the car. From there, three minutes and 41 seconds passed between the time he unlocked his car to the time he turned on the headlights and pulled out of the parking spot. So what was going on in those three minutes and 41 seconds? Well, it's anybody's guess, but if you guessed he was incapacitating someone and stuffing that someone either into his trunk or into the backseat of his car in order to make off with this victim, then I'd say that that's a fairly accurate guess. But according to him, nothing could be further from the truth. He claimed that he drove out of the parking lot, he was alone, and he stated that he went straight home. But if that were the case, then he was all turned around because he was headed in the opposite direction of his home, as seen on that surveillance video of his car exiting the lot. He specifically told investigators that he turned left when he clearly turned right. He was caught in a lie, and it was kind of a big lie. And after that, he claimed he was home, in bed for the rest of the evening, like the good family man, right? Right. That's where he said he was all night until he left for work the next morning at 8.30 a.m. When questioned by police about that night, his wife refused to answer any questions. And this is just a guess on my part, but she probably didn't want to talk to them 
out of shame and embarrassment about the fact that her husband never came home at all that night. The family man. Where was he? Well, according to his cell phone records, he definitely wasn't home at 8.30 in the morning like he claimed. They found that he had made a cell phone call to his wife at 7.51 in the morning to her cell phone. His phone pinged a tower north of his home. So there was another big fat lie. He also told investigators that he went to work on time. He had a 9 a.m. appointment that he had to keep. But according to his co-workers, he was late, very late. He missed his appointment, arriving at approximately 10 a.m. Another big lie. And his employees also noticed that his face was severely scratched. It really stood out to them, so much so that they remarked about the scratches, asking him who beat him up and that they hoped the other guy looks worse. It was apparent that he had injuries and they were fresh. What's significant about that is the night before at the casino, Garcia had no injuries on his face at all. He told police that the scratch marks were caused by yard work and that he was on his tractor while trimming a tree on his property and he got poison oak on his face. Investigators were scratching their heads because they knew it was quite unusual for anyone to be doing that kind of yard work between the hours of 1 a.m. and 8 a.m. when he's supposed to be getting ready for a meeting. The same guy who needs a plan to have a sexual encounter is out doing rigorous yard work in the middle of the night. Yeah, okay, sure, whatever. So investigators asked a specialist in emergency medicine to examine Garcia's injuries, as she's seen a lot of them. And what struck her right away was the location of all of his injuries. He had four parallel scratch marks along the left side of his face as well as on his chest. What's significant about the injuries on the left means that the person making those scratch marks is right-handed, using their right hand to fend him off. And the scratches were in a pattern that is uniform, all in a row, all parallel, as if scratched by four fingers. If he had been scratched, like in an accident, the scratches would have been more random. You wouldn't get distinct claw mark-like patterns in a fall from a tree. She was convinced that those marks were left by a person who was engaged in a violent struggle. She believed that this was the message that Christy was leaving behind for her family to let them know that this was the man that made her disappear. They also searched Garcia's computer at his home, and they found some interesting stuff there too. They discovered that Garcia had visited a website on forensic toxicology, forensic firearms evidence, and a website about date rape drugs. All very incriminating, but of course, circumstantial. When asked, where did Christy go? She was walking with him, and then poof, she's gone. His answer is, well, you don't see that she got into his car. You don't see where she went, right? Who's to say that Danny Berlando, her boyfriend, is not in that parking lot waiting for her? Detectives weren't buying it, though. They've all but cleared Danny. He was helpful. He remained cooperative from start to finish. Garcia, not so much. And there was all that evidence that was pointing to him. He lawyered up quickly, and he clammed up. 
He stopped cooperating with investigators. He wasn't going to have any more to say to them. So, without a confession, without a body, without a crime scene, without a murder weapon, without a cause of death, investigators were worried about how to make a case against Mario Garcia. They obtained a warrant to search Garcia's car since he had chosen to stop cooperating. To their dismay, his car had already been thoroughly cleaned inside and out, and suspiciously, the floor mats and trunk liner were missing too. That really raised some eyebrows. But Garcia could have cleaned his car a hundred times over, a thousand times over, but it is really hard to get trace evidence out of your car. They discovered a brownish discoloration in the back seat. It almost looked like a dirt stain. A presumptive test showed that the stain was blood, but because of the scotch guard that was on the seats, it prevented DNA testing to provide viable results. So the blood evidence was useless. All it did was show that someone was bleeding on that seat. They did, however, find small traces of blood on the fibers of the seam between the seats. They found a little bit of blood spatter on the passenger side door that resulted from some sort of medium to high velocity incident that caused that blood spatter to pattern on that door. They also found two strands of blonde hair, one in the trunk and the other on the passenger side door handle. DNA testing on the hair found in his car proved to be a match to Christie's DNA from hair that they took from her hairbrush. And the trace evidence of blood found in his car turned out to be a mixture of both Christie's and Garcia's. This was proof that the two had made physical contact with one another. He insisted that she never entered his car. But, of course, that was just another one of his lies. She was in his car. She bled in his car. She left another message behind so everyone would know. According to where analysts found those pieces of evidence, they theorized that Garcia incapacitated Christie by slamming her head on the passenger side door, causing that hair to lodge in his door handle. He then pushed her into the back seat where she bled. He then drove out of the parking lot, seemingly alone. He drove somewhere north of his home, and that is where the fight ensued, Christy fighting for her life. They scratched and hit one another, leaving that blood mixture and those scratches on his chest and on his face. Whatever he did to her next is unknown. I suspect that he sexually assaulted her and then killed her and placed her in the trunk where she left another one of her hairs behind. He then drove away, dumping her body someplace where it has to this day never been found. He signaled his location when he needed to call his wife and I'm sure he had some explaining to do. And that was proof that he wasn't home. He never came home that night. He was busy doing away with Christy. Before we continue on with Christy's story, you out there listening might be interested in knowing that Christy was not the first woman to have a violent encounter with Garcia. She wasn't even the second. It seems Garcia has had quite a history of violence against women, dating back more than a quarter century. And all the skeletons in Garcia's closet would come out to be exposed when investigators working on Christy's case went digging into his background. First, 
there was Wendy Ward, a former girlfriend of Garcia's. They met while both of them were living in Oakland, California, back in the late 70s. She was 25, he 27. She described him back then as charming, mostly, but there were times when he seemed to exhibit a darker side to his personality. In an interview, she stated it was like a curtain was drawn. Sometimes he'd be this normal, everyday person, while other times, there was just this whole other dark side to him. So on January 12, 1979, she had a terrifying encounter with Garcia and his dark side when he grabbed her and pushed her into his van and drove off. He was holding her by the back of her neck while seated in the passenger seat, and he told her that if she tried to do anything, he would take her head and smash it into the dashboard. He drove to a secluded spot and forced her into the back of the van. He demanded that she disrobe, but at first she said no and started to fight with him. She scratched at him and clawed at him until he finally put his hands around her throat and began choking her. She couldn't breathe, and then the fear set in that he could just end her life in that moment without a second thought. So, she complied. He sexually assaulted her in the back of that van, and when he was done, he drove the two of them to his apartment, and when they got there, he pulled a gun out of his cabinet. He grabbed an ammunition cartridge and slammed it into the bottom of the gun. He held the gun to her head and pulled the trigger, but it didn't fire. He then took the gun and held it in her mouth and pulled the trigger again, and again, it didn't fire. He then told her that it wasn't loaded this time, but he can come and get her anytime he wanted. He sexually assaulted her again, and afterwards he demanded that she take a bath. After, he made a sandwich, ate it, and took her home. She went to the police right away, and they arrested Mario, but she was convinced to get this over with quickly. Keep it out of the courts. Let's do this plea bargain with him and move on. That sounded good to her, and I bet she didn't want to have to relive that terrible night with Garcia. But the plea wasn't anything that she had expected. He pleaded guilty to one count of assault with a deadly weapon and was sentenced to two years probation. But according to Garcia, despite the fact that he pleaded guilty to assault with a deadly weapon, he claimed that the charges were untrue and unfounded. When asked if the charges weren't true, why would he plead guilty if he's innocent? He claimed that he had no choice, that he was young, he was in college, and he was trying to support himself and he had limited money and income to fight the charges. He also claims that there was no guns involved in the encounter and that he did not physically attack her. But according to Wendy, Mario Garcia is a very, very dangerous man. He was a danger to women and women needed to be aware if they're ever alone with him. Although she never forgot Garcia, she was able to eventually move on but, fast forward to October of 2005, and all of the memories of Garcia came rushing back when the police showed up at her house and gave her a business card of a detective and asked her to give him a call. Come to find, it was the investigator working on Christie's case. They had uncovered Garcia's criminal record 
and wanted to speak to her about her encounter with him 26 years earlier. She told them about the sexual assault, but she also told them something that they didn't expect, that there's more, another incident that they should look into. Turns out, there was a woman named Lynette who Garcia dated soon after Wendy in 1979, and it too was another stormy relationship. As a matter of fact, Lynette's brother still had a letter from Garcia to his sister where he admits in writing that he had hit her in the past. But they stayed in their relationship until the end of 1979. They had just celebrated Christmas, Garcia, Lynette, and Lynette's mother. They ate dinner at a local hotel, and after dinner, the three of them headed home in Lynette's car. Elsewhere that night, a retired chief accident investigator for the Oakland Police Department got an urgent call telling him that a car had plunged into the water near the Oakland airport. Seemed strange to him because the weather was clear and the streets were dry. Nothing really hazardous for an accident like this. Witnesses at the scene stated that the car pulled over on the right shoulder. As they drove by, the car suddenly accelerated. They saw it racing towards the water at about 50 miles per hour. There was a ledge into the pier and the car shot off that ledge and into the water and sank approximately 30 to 40 feet. To witnesses, it looked as though the car was driven deliberately into the water. Lynette and her mother died, but somehow Garcia managed to save himself. He claims that he struggled to get his seatbelt off. He panicked and he managed to get one of the windows open. And as he opened it, all this water came rushing in. He got out of the car and just assumed everybody else did too. And that was all he was able to recall. He told police Lynette was driving. It was her car but the investigator at the time was very suspicious. Police were never really able to determine who was driving the car, but that was about all the statement Garcia was ever gonna give on the matter. The next day, he retained one of the finest criminal attorneys in the city of Oakland. When he was asked why he hired a criminal attorney if it had all been an accident, all he could say was it's the thing to do. It's the legal right of every citizen of the United States and his attorney advised him to not talk anymore. No charges were ever filed in the deaths of Lynette and her mom, but that would not be so for Christie's case. After three weeks, investigators felt like they had enough evidence to charge Garcia with her murder, and this was going to have to be a case with no body, the thing that haunts Christie's parents. What did he do with her? Prosecutors were worried about trying the no-body case. No one knows how Christie was killed. There's no weapon. There are no witnesses. And Garcia certainly wasn't talking. He wasn't going to admit anything. He was going to roll the dice and take it to trial and maintain his innocence. Portraying himself as the victim of circumstance, he was in the wrong place at the wrong time and the police were the ones who rushed to judgment. With the trial, all Christie's family could hope for is a conviction and that Garcia will finally lead them to Christie's body. The prosecution laid out its theory. The night she disappeared, she walked with Garcia, possibly to get a ride home 
or possibly to her car in case she parked far, or maybe to get some money that he was offering to loan her. When they got to the car, he somehow incapacitated her and placed her inside the back seat. And then, three minutes and 41 seconds after unlocking his car, he is seen leaving the parking lot. Garcia claims that she was never in his car, despite the evidence. Evidence which he accused investigators of planting in his car. The lead investigator brushed those accusations aside, saying that he could not defend or explain the evidence, so they had to claim that it was planted. His defense also pointed the finger at Danny, but investigators were more than confident that Danny was not responsible for Christie's death. And besides, Christy left her mark on the killer. She left those scratches on Garcia. Witnesses at the casino never saw injuries on Garcia's face. The doctor too testified that he was sitting there right next to Garcia at the casino and he could clearly see his face. He didn't see any injuries at all. And he's reasonably good at making those observations because that's what he does for a living. But Garcia's co-workers certainly saw them. Several of them saw the scratches and nobody was buying his story that it was an accident. Incidentally, the scratches Christy left on Garcia's chest look eerily similar to the scratches she left on Danny's chest several months earlier. Based on all the evidence, it pointed to a close quarter struggle in the backseat of Garcia's Camry. Garcia even took the stand and vehemently denied all of the charges against him. On the day of closing arguments, Wendy came to Sacramento to support Christie's family and maybe, hopefully, finally see Garcia get some justice served. And then the case went to the jury. They deliberated for three days and they returned with a verdict, finding Garcia guilty of first-degree murder. For the jurors, it was the marks Christie left on him. It was Christie speaking to them. And now, Christie's parents were hoping to get the one thing Garcia still holds on to tightly, the location of where he left their daughter. But it would never be. Once the family finished their victim impact statements, including Christie's sister, her mom, her dad, and her stepdad, Garcia continued to maintain his innocence, stating, I suppose this hearing, I'm supposed to ask for mercy, for forgiveness, to show remorse. However, I will do no such thing. I did not kill Christy Wilson. I am innocent, and I will continue saying it until the day I die. And in jail is likely where Garcia will die. He was sentenced to 25 years to life, but because of his conviction in Wendy's case all those years ago, his sentence was doubled. Wendy and Lynette's family as well have finally been able to see justice served for the damage Garcia caused all of them. To this day, Christy Wilson has still never been found. Garcia continues to refuse to disclose where he left her. Hopefully someday, someone will stumble upon her and finally be able to bring her home. Thank you again for joining me for this bonus episode of California Dreaming. 
the disappearance of Christy Wilson. And until next time, sweet dreams. Sweet dreams.